This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and my guest today is a fascinating guest whom I've known for a few years, and uh, he is Andrew Urban. Andrew, welcome to ADH. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, David. And if I may begin by a reference to our sponsors, please don't forget CPAC. CPAC is the unmissable conservative conference that started in the United States in 1974 and is coming to Sydney on August the 19th and 20th. I'll tell you who's talking and how to get a 10% discount at the end of the show. So that's CPAC. My guest today is Andrew Urban, investigative journalist and author. Andrew, you have such a fascinating background. I wonder if you could tell us a little about your background. Uh, I'll, I'll skip through the many, many years <laughs> that I've been on this earth. I was born in Hungary um, uh, just after the war, and um, I escaped during the 1956 revolution with my mother. My father had already gone to England before the Iron Curtain came down, so just before it was no longer possible to leave Hungary. Uh, he finished his studies at the University of London, got a PhD there. So in 1956, when we escaped, um, we contacted him, my mother contacted him, and he arranged for us to be, uh, to be uh, taken to London, to be flown to London. Uh, well, England, actually, we didn't go to London. We landed in some army airport outside London and had my first English meal, which is memorable for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I, you I have something across... against English cuisine, Andrew? <laughs> I did then. I, I came across, the first time I come across green jelly, I didn't know what it was <laughs> as a dessert there. Um, I went to I went to school briefly. I was a terrible student. The only thing I was good at was English, and um, I became the editor of the school magazine. I don't know how that happened. Three years after I arrived, and I, I hadn't I picked up English while I was there, um, and I always wanted to write. I began writing as a uh, eight year old. I think I started writing little short stories that I never finished. Um, but then um, I left school and got a job as a reporter on a weekly trade menswear magazine. Um, and a year later, uh, I, I was on a 707 flying to Sydney, um, thanks to the Australian government's uh, migration scheme, um, and landed here in Australia Day in 1966, wearing my lovely warm camel uh, hair jacket because in 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 Europe it was winter of course and um, I arrived and I thought maybe that while I was in the air there'd be some kind of an atomic war because there was nobody around <laughs> <laughs> so as we drove in from the airport to the um, uh, to the uh, immigrants center um, I quickly got rid of my uh, jacket <laughs> and uh, when we got there, I was I was put into a room with a, a spotty English teenager, and I really didn't take to this arrangement at all. So I rang the only number I had um, at that time, uh, uh, an English journalist who'd come out of Perth University, uh, who I knew in London, gave me the number of a friend of his he went to uni with, um, Marina, her name was, and I rang her and I said, look, I've just rang, I'm just a friend of... 
um, Peter Thompson's and, and you know, I'm, I've just arrived. And she said, where are you? And I told her and she said, oh, no, you can't possibly stay there. Come over here, you know, and she was living at the cross. And so um, I'm, I don't know how I managed to get a train from Villawood to King's Cross, but I did. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I turned up at her place. What, what year was this? 1966. Well, I don't think there were trains to King's Cross then, but uh, you probably caught a tram. No, I got a no, I got a train to Central. Ah, oh, right, Central, and then I I don't know how I got. I might have got a taxi. I don't know. I didn't have much money, so, but maybe I did get a taxi to her apartment block, and uh, I knocked on her apartment door, and uh, a blonde woman opened the door, and I said, "Oh, hi, Marina. I'm Andrew," and she said, "I'm not Marina," and she wouldn't open the door. I'm not Marina. Marina's out. She'll be back soon. Wait outside. I thought this was a bit strange. <laughs> All right. Anyway, about 10, 15 minutes later, a gentleman emerged from the room, from the from the apartment, and um, the blonde lady said, OK, come in and sit there on the couch. And then it suddenly dawned on me what was going on here. Marina was sharing an apartment with um, uh, an entrepreneur young lady and uh, she arrived and I, I got a, I got a bed in the sunroom and eventually I, I eventually got a job. It was actually quite difficult. I got a, I was, I was, um, when I arrived, I'd been a journalist for a year in London and I thought, well, you know, a year of journalism in London, in the colonies, that would surely, <laughs> you know, I could get a job. Um, but I couldn't even get a job on the Egg Marketing Board Journal, you know, which is <laughs> terrible. I felt really, really de depressed. In fact, I spent one night sleeping on a bench in Central Rail. Yeah, I just couldn't get I didn't have money. So finally, I did manage to get a job um, working for, not for, for Australian Gas Company digging holes in the road. You know, that was, that was, <laughs> I thought if my mother could see me now going from the bench on the railway station to digging holes, she might think I made the wrong decision coming out, you know. But, um, well, many people did physical work when they arrived in Sydney. Yes, in fact, the yeah. original, the original English immigrants did physical work when they came from London in, uh, in chains, or they weren't in chains, <laughs> but they certainly they certainly yeah. did that. Yes, yes. I was following a tradition of Australianizing myself, you know, new Australian as I was then. And uh, anyway, I got a job on a, eventually on a country paper, the Narendra Argus, which is a bi-weekly. That was my first job as a journalist here. Um, and but then I got a then, job. If I could uh, encapsulate your life here in Australia, you, you became a respected investigative journalist an author of a large number of books and <laughs> journal articles and so on, but you also became an expert and authority in relation to film, particularly film from the continent of Europe. And you were, for example, you were the host, were you not, for some years of uh, world, uh, world movies on SBS television. Yeah, yeah, that was a so great job. A, but, but you've come today to talk about a particular book and also your latest book. But one of the things that uh, interests me in relation to people coming to Australia, you came to Australia as a constitutional monarchy. Did you feel instantly that we should become a republic? 
No, no, I just left the actual monarchy. <laughs> just <laughs> I'd come from London, where where you know that was it was an accepted fact. I mean, you know, I I knew that 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 was the political system here. Uh, I had absolutely no qualms about it whatsoever. And did you have qualms or or a wish to change in 1999 when Mr Turnbull emerged and Mr Keating and Mr Turnbull decided that we would become some form of a republic? We said a politician's republic. Yeah, no, I, I did toy with the idea at one stage. I remember thinking, because I, I kept in, in touch with the debate, you know, and I was going, reading a lot about it. And what attracted me to the idea of Australia becoming a republic, I think, was this kind of romantic notion that Australia was a, a child of Britain and um, Australia was growing up. Uh, but I didn't. But in the end, I thought, no, look, the system is working well. And I remember writing a letter to the paper in response to uh, somebody else's comments about how Australian monarchy could mirror, I mean, Australian Republic could mirror the monarchy. And I thought, well, why would you want to mirror it? There's a real thing. Yeah. And ever since then, I never bothered about it. <laughs> and uh, I still don't. I think, I think I, you know, I've grown to the, to the firm belief that the constitutional monarchy is actually probably one of the, certainly the most robust and finest political systems anywhere in the world. I mean, it's been proven to be so. Well, that, that I think is so. And uh, I interviewed John Ruddick, who's the, uh, he's the uh, Liberal Democrat member of the New South Wales Parliament. He's the leader of it. He's the leader because he's the only one there. But uh, he said for some years when he was young, he was a Republican, feeling that the monarchy was old hat and uh, Australia should become a Republic, until he heard the saying, which is sometimes attributed to Churchill, that uh, the crown is important not for the power it wields, but the power it denies others. And yes, said, I like that saying, yes. yeah. And he said once he, once he heard that, he instantly saw the whole point of it and became a constitutional monarchist. Yeah. One of the, one of the books that you've written recently, which is highly relevant, is the Climate Alarm Reality Check. And it's a, a book which obviously is written for people who are not scientists, for people who don't have a lot of time because it's not a large book, but you summarise wonderfully the question marks which relate to the theory of man-made global warming. Why did you write it? I'd been writing about um, the, the, the climate debate, to put it uh, succinctly, for several years uh, as a freelance journalist. Um, I did, I, I've writ I'd written a number of articles uh, and I'd been following debate as well as getting kind of closer to the, the, the scientific questions. Um, and it occurred to me um, a few years ago now, uh, just before I wrote the book, in fact, that there was a, a tremendous amount of ignorance amongst the general public um, about the subject matter, about the because people was you know it was claimed to be that following the science was the mantra, um, a horrible phrase in my view, but anyway it's it's practical, um, and I just felt that as a journalist, 
I would like to, I wouldn't have written the book if, if the media had done the job for me, or at least before me, um, because it was, it was sort of everything I read was an un, 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 un incurious approach to the debate. That is a, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. The media has been terribly incurious, particularly, for example, the ABC, uh, a lot of the commercial television. Uh, you, you have a wonderful chapter there, don't you, which is 0.0012% fries the planet, question mark. <laughs> Zero point zero zero one two percent flies the pla fries the planet, and you're obviously talking there about CO two, man-made CO two. Yeah, yeah. Look, I had a, um, a before I wrote the book um, when there was a lot of debate, and it was quite, you know, quite a. a, a you, I'm sure you'd remember a few years ago. Um, at the height of the debate about climate change, which was originally then, it was still anthropological global warning, warming, AGW. And I remember having, uh, being at a dinner with some very good friends um, and the subject came up and somehow it came up, um, the, the husband uh, said something along the lines of, well, you know, how, how much, carbon dioxide, you know, he knew I had an interest in it. How much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere? And I said 0.04%. And he said, is that all? <laughs> you know, is that all still? Nobody knew this, you know, it seemed to me. And it's that those basic simple facts, if people know that Australia's contribution to uh, carbon dioxide contribution <laughs> to the atmosphere is 0.0002%, they would probably think twice about accepting the ruling orthodoxy that uh, fossil fuel emissions heat the world. Well, what do, you think, what do you think, Andrew, of so many television broadcasts, news broadcasts, on commercial television and the ABC, where they talk about CO2, sometimes just referring to it as carbon. Yeah. And they show a power station and they show steam rising from the power station. <laughs> they don't comment, they don't say this is CO2, but they show these enormous yeah. amounts of steam coming yeah. out of the power station. What sort of journalism do you think that is? Well, it's not journalism at all, it's propagandism. Um, I mean, it's in the same class as referring to um, carbon dioxide emissions as pollution. You know, the plants wouldn't like that. And we can't see CO2, can we? Can't see it, can't smell it, you know. Um, but, but that's where it started. That's when I started to think, well, what, what is missing in the public debate is actual factual information, not the propaganda information put out by IPCC and the activists. So then it, it went on from there and I, I, I was reading a lot of um, climate scientists and the book actually is not me talking, it's these scientists who are talking. Um, I found scientists who are um, at least, if not more, Credible than the ones uh, being uh, touted by the uh, by the climate change lobby, if you like, um, 
factual information, even like Professor Ian Plymer, the Australian geologist who, you know, he has, he's written a number of books on the subject and, you know, he, he shows through geology how ridiculous this concept is that carbon dioxide or fossil fuel emissions uh, warming the planet. It's never been shown yes. and people don't know that. And you, you have this wonderful chapter called What Scientists Say, and you've extracted a number of leading scientists, scientists with international reputations, uh, outstanding scientists like Ian Plymer, who's probably Australia's leading geologist, yeah. and uh, has such standing that he's accepted in foreign universities, German universities, and uh, he says it's all rubbish. Yes, and, but and I, so I would suggest your book. People, people should read your book because it's a manageable book. You can understand it all in a short period of time. And if you want more information, you can go to Ian Plymer's tome, which is enormous. <laughs> I, that's what I think people ought to be advised to do if they want to get more. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was. I, I, I sort of. I felt driven to do it because, as I say, that information wasn't discussed. It was never in the public debates and discussions that I was following about the subject. I had never seen. Oh, except once. I, I have seen once uh, when Alan Jones asked Tanya Plibersek, "Well." <laughs> You have that in your book, don't you? Yes. <laughs> she, she didn't know. So, I mean... It, yes, you uh, asked... I, she, Alan asked her how much how much CO2 is in the atmosphere and she just didn't so know. Top of my head, I don't know. Yes. So here she's making, helping to make a debate about some, controlling something of which she knows nothing about. Yes. Either that or it's not honest. One of, the, so, yeah. one of the very interesting points in your book is not only do you expose the media for just uh, not, not playing their role of uh, requiring accountability, requiring that this be demonstrated to be true, they've just gone along as messengers, but you've also shown the dishonesty of the politicians and you have one particular chapter which is devoted to the dishonesty of American politicians in relation to the temperature in the room where they were discussing this. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was in June 1988. And uh, one of the senators had invited um, Jim Hansen from NASA to talk about global warming. That was very new then. It was all, you know, the, 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 new, the new scare. And what it, this was on June 23rd, 1988. It, he'd set that date before because it was forecast to be the hottest day of the year. It was summer in America. And so the night before, he sabotaged the air conditioning system. And he, <laughs> he, he admits this freely in an interview that I found online. He says, what we did was we sabotaged the air conditioning system so it would be really hot in the room. And that was Jim Hansen wiping his brow with heat talking about global warming. Oh, it was beautiful, he says. I mean, that really... It, it sent the whole debate off on this dishonesty trick. That was unbelievable. But the, the result is we have a situation, for example, in Australia where we are getting rid of cheap and reliable electricity and we're replacing it with electricity which is unreliable and extraordinarily expensive. It's going up 
by enormous amounts, and it's adding to the cost of living, it's adding to inflation. The politicians are doing this, even, in my, in my view, even if it were all true, you wouldn't do what they're yeah. doing now because the renewables won't be able to take over to replace yeah. the reliable electricity. Do, do you yes. find this appalling on the part of a, I, Australian I politicians? Yeah, I find it appalling. And just a couple of days ago, um, there was a, a review of a book by Andy May, um, The Grip of Culture. And um, he, he just, in, just on the back cover blurb, he explains how in his research, he found all these polls internationally, which show that it's not act, and, and you know I've come to the same conclusion. It's not actually about the science anymore. It it never was for very long. It was really about political control. But now it's uh, Frank, Frank Furedi, who I think you might know of, um, said he he describes it as the West is being is caught in the in the grip and haunted by this uh, cultural religion which is a lot of people have been saying that, that it, it, it explains why politicians are impervious to reason and rational discussion about it. They're impervious to actual scientific facts that disprove the propaganda uh, because it's, it's religious. It's, and and it's, it's very hard for people to understand or believe that. But how else can you explain that when you present rational and provable, objectionable scientific information, they dismiss it. It's like the Prime Minister and others constantly referring to the increase of extreme weather. Well, it's just not true. <laughs> the data doesn't prove it. But they keep saying it because that's the faith. So I think it's terrible. Yes. So it's the most damage done to, to the world for no good. Yes. You have a wonderful chapter there, don't you, called Climate Change versus, or compared with, climate variability. And I think yeah. there you explain something which everybody should quickly grasp, that uh, the climate changes all the time. Yes. Well, I mean, just, you know, a simple thought. How did the Ice Age end? By warming, <laughs> you know, and that was well before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, as, uh, as Ian Planer points out, climate has been changing for four and a half billion years. It's natural variability. And the, and the notion that this is one of the big challenges for climate scientists, people like Judith Curry, who talked a lot about the, um, about the, the doubts, the insecurities that climate scientists have about what is driving climate. Uh, because natural variability. Now, I, I, from what I've learned, I personally don't believe that carbon dioxide has anything to do with it, and it's never been proved that it has. So imagine the enormous harm being done through, throughout the West, primarily throughout the West, not in China, <laughs> you know, they don't buy it, throughout the West, based on policies which are not based on facts. They're based on propaganda. Why, is it, why is it, do you think, and uh, I don't wish to draw too many conclusions from this, 
Why is it that when our politicians, when those who are in charge of running all of these activities to change the climate, why is it that the politicians, when they look at renewables, only choose those renewables which will enrich the Chinese communists? They only choose solar and wind because all of the all of the uh, equipment comes in from China, enormous equipment, very difficult to get rid of when it uh, ends mm. its life. They reject hydro. They reject building more dams so we can have more electricity from dams. They reject that completely. In fact, the current government stopped even some of the dams, the few dams that uh, the Morrison government was either correcting or starting. And in addition, they reject nuclear. Why do they reject all of those forms of renewables which don't enrich the Chinese Communist Party? Is there something there or I'm re am I reading too much into that? Look, um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to um, say categorically because it's guesswork, but um, I think everybody can look at that and say, well, whatever the reason is, it's wrong. Whatever the reason is, um, the, it's even more wrong when you consider that the, um, the benefits to the Chinese come not only from the weakening of the West, but from the, uh, the, the, the financial gains that are made by producing those renewable gizmos that will be littering the countryside for decades to come. I don't know what we're going to do about those. Well, this is very fascinating, and I think people should read your book. It's a, a very useful book to as an introduction. Uh, could you remind me of the name and the publisher? Yes, and it's published by uh, Wilkinson Publishing. It's called Climate Alarm Reality Check, uh, and it's... Uh, it's it's quite it's a, it's about half the size of half the length of a normal book probably, and it's Could so be. easy to digest. It's a very it's one of those things which is very important for people to have. Can we then go to another area of your activities? And you have a a recent book. Uh, it's about to come out, I think. The Exoneration yeah. Papers, Sue Neil Fraser. Could you tell yes. us about that? Yes, um, it's um, one of my other focus of writing is wrongful convictions. And I've been writing about Sunil Fraser's case um, since 2013. Um, this is the first book devoted entirely to her case. My previous book, Murder by the Prosecution, uh, dealt with it and some other cases of wrongful convictions. Um, she has just been released on parole after 13 years uh, in jail for murdering her partner on Australia Day 2009 on their yacht in um, Hobart on the Derwent. Um, it is certainly one of the most egregious and obvious miscarriages of justice, um, made worse by the fact that rather like Linda Chamberlain's case, not only was the trial wrongly uh, concluded, but so were uh, the two appeals that she was able to um, have. And this book basically deconstructs the whole case. And I go into detail about why 
it's why that's why it's called the exoneration papers because I'm stating that she did not commit that crime, um, and it'll be launched on August 23 in Hobart by the former Tasmanian Premier and Attorney General Lara Giddings. You have a number of uh, cases which you've examined where the conviction was wrongful, a whole series of them. You've made a specialty of it. It's a very important matter that you're examining. We, we, uh, our interests uh, crossed in one particular case that related to Father John Fleming. Yes. Uh, which was, a, I thought, a tragic case. But I think you've become, an, you've become an expert in this field. Well, I don't know about an expert, but I'm certainly from a journalistic point of view. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of work on it. And I work with, uh, in particular, with a legal academic in uh, Adelaide called Bob Miles, um, and with the lawyers involved in the various cases. I'm, I'm re researching and writing another book at the moment about another shocking case. Um, I got into this through Sunil Fraser back in 2013, um, but the, it, it sort of became like a magnet uh, for my writing. And I, I stopped writing about film and I started writing about wrongful convictions. And it was because of a film. Um, I always said, um, you know, presenting my movie course, I always said that films can change your life. And of course it did change my life, this one particular documentary about Sunil Fraser. Uh, that that sort of dragged me out of the world of film into the film of wrongful convictions. Um, and I've got a, two or three more lined up to go. It's, it's a, unfortunately, there's, the bottom line is that I've come to the realisation that the criminal justice system is in serious need of reform in certain areas, several areas. Um, but it's not, doesn't appear to be keen to do so, you know? There's great resistance to it. What do you think of the argument, which is sometimes put up, that because a jury will be tainted, the person is so well known, the case is so well known, that it would be better to have the case heard just by a judge? What do you think of that argument? It has merit, but I'm, I'm afraid of the last decade, I've kind of lost confidence in all of it. I've lost confidence um, in some of the judgments I've seen, um, both at trial and at appeal, and I've lost confidence in juries as well. Did you, were you involved in the uh, Cardinal Pell case? Not involved, no. I was simply writing about it. What was your conclusion? My conclusion was that the High Court got it absolutely right. Yes, I was surprised. Uh, I thought that I was surprised that it was it was unanimous, not by the decision. I was surprised yeah. that the, all of the judges agreed because it was so patently obvious. In yes. fact, uh, yes. when when you looked at the judgment of the Court of Appeal, two of the judges didn't seem to understand the law. They didn't seem to yes. understand the obligation of the Crown was to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And you couldn't just believe the victim. And they seem to be saying, you've got to believe the victim. Yeah, yes. I mean, there was a lot of criticism of those two appellate judges um, because of their lack of experience in criminal trials, which is very different from civil trials. True, and, but uh, a, a first-year law student gets to, in fact, you don't <laughs> even have to be a law student to understand the principle is right. proof beyond reasonable doubt. You are presumed innocent 
until you're shown to be guilty. And one would think that that would be grinding away in your head if you were sitting on the bench hearing an appeal, wouldn't it? Yes, but you see, David, um, the Pell case w fell into the sexual crimes category. Of course, yes. And in sexual criminology today, um, the mantra is victim-centric, not evidence-centric. And it's not only believe her, it's believe him if it's a sexual crime or alleged crime. And that mentality is colouring uh, the criminal justice system very badly. That's one of the, that's the current case I'm working on, the historical child sex abuse, in which that, unfortunately, that has tainted not only the, 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 the jury, but the prosecution and the bench. It's, it, it's clear. Yes. I was astounded in the original Cardinal Pell trial when he was brought through a crowd as if it were the French Revolution. They were shrieking and screaming at him. He was being abused. He was brought through them by the police every day. I was surprised that the judge didn't say, this trial cannot continue. The, the accused cannot be brought into court every day in these circumstances. The jury will be affected by this. This trial will stop and it will be held somewhere else and uh, the judge would have said, well, if the Attorney General can't arrange for this, or the Ministry of Justice can't arrange for this to be held somewhere else, or they can't arrange for a clearance to occur where the, the accused is brought in without having to go through that yes, every day, yeah. this trial will not continue. That's what the judge, I think, should have said. What do you think? Absolutely agree. And there's no excuse for it because as you know, as everybody knows, there are other entrances and the police can block um, um, the public from surrounding, for example, the back or rear entrance of a courthouse. So that, that's the least that they could have done. Um, and I absolutely agree that the, the, it's, it's not possible for a jury to not be tainted by those scenes and by what happened before. Yes. It was as though the Cardinal were in a tumbrel going yeah. through the mob at the French Revolution heading towards the guillotine. It, it was really outrageous, and, but it yeah. doesn't surprise me from what has been happening in Victoria. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm disturbed about in my research into wrongful convictions is the failure or the many failures that are evident in the administration of, for example, well, the latest example is in the in the case of uh, the Britain Higgins uh, rape allegation against Bruce Lemon. The the normal processes were abandoned. Yes. How can that happen? Exactly, Andrew. I'm terribly sorry. We seem to have uh, run out of time. You must come along again because I wanted to ask you about your wonderful production for many years of a movie magazine. You're a man who's brought a, an enormous amount of intellect and culture and passion to your activities. And uh, I'm sure that uh, the viewers will be very interested if you come back for at least another occasion. But thank you very much for being available today. And now I must, uh, <laughs> I must go to, a, to our sponsors and, uh, and remind uh, viewers not to forget the CPAC conference. It's been unmissable 
for supporters of conservative and centre-right politics in the United States since 1974, and it's happening again in Sydney on August the 19th and 20th. The speakers include Jacinta Price, Warren Mundine, Tony Abbott, Pauline Hanson, John Anderson, Matt Canavan, Moira Deeming and more. Get a 10% discount, enter the code ADHTV23 before July the 31st. And you'll see on the screen an indication of uh, where to visit. It's cpac.net. And uh, this should be on everybody's agenda. Once again, Andrew, thank you very much for such an interesting time. Thank you for all the work you're doing. You're making a major contribution to Australia, particularly in wrongful convictions, but you've also enriched the art of this country through the cinema. So thank you. Kind of you to say so. Thank you very much for having me. I'm David Flint, and uh, this is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. Until next time.